Welcome to Destiny Moments with Angel Murchison. Today on the broadcast, I have a very special message by Diane Danielson from Limestone, Maine, entitled Washing Dirty Feet. Well, one bright, sunny Sunday morning, many, many years ago, Jesus got up and went to church. Now, of course, it wasn't really Sunday. It was the Jewish Sabbath. And it wasn't really church. It was the local synagogue. Jesus was not the pastor there. He was not the local rabbi. He was not even the ruler of the synagogue. He was an honored guest. And the custom was in that day that if there was an honored guest in the synagogue, they were asked to stand up and to read a portion of scripture and then make comments on it. So Jesus was asked to stand up and he was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he found the place in Isaiah 61 where Isaiah is prophesying of the coming Messiah. And he, if we read in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, we read what happened next. He opened and unrolled the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news, to the poor. He has sent me to announce release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to send forth as delivered those who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden, bruised, crushed, and broken down by calamity, to proclaim the accepted and acceptable year of the Lord, the day when salvation and the free favors of God profusely abound. Then he rolled up the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were gazing attentively at him and he began to speak to them. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled while you are present and hearing. What Jesus read in the synagogue that day was basically his job description as the Messiah. In all of the Gospels, we find him doing those very things that Isaiah had prophesied. We discover him preaching to large crowds of people. We find him especially concerned about the poor and the oppressed. He even fed thousands of people who were hungry with just a few handfuls of food. We see him setting captives free from all sorts of demonic control. We see him restoring sight to the blind, healing those that are held captive to disease, insanity, and even death, and declaring always that now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of God's abundant favor. But one of the interesting things about Jesus' choice of scripture that day is that he did not read, he did not read the complete passage from the book of Isaiah. He read about half of it, but stopped after proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. He left out the part about the day of God's vengeance, the day when people will be mourning and their spirits will be burdened and things will be horrible. He left that part out. And he also left out the prophecy of the eventual restoration of Israel. Why did he do that? Why not read the Messiah's complete job description? What was he saying about himself? And how does that relate to us? 
Well, it appears that biblical prophecies are somewhat like a mountain range. If you stand in front of a mountain range, you'll see the mountain that's directly in front of you, and you might see the peak that's behind that, and maybe one over here behind that, and maybe some off in the distance. But what you can't see is the valleys in between the mountains. You don't know how wide they are. You don't know how deep they are. And you don't know how long it would take to get from one mountain to the next. Biblical prophecy is like that. There'll be peaks, mountain peaks of prophecy, of events that will happen in the coming years, in the future. But we cannot see between those peaks of prophecy to know how long it will be before those things come to pass. So Jesus read only the first part of Isaiah's prophecy because it was not yet time for the day of God's vengeance. That day has not come yet. It is yet to come. When Jesus returns for the second time, that will usher in the day of God's vengeance. But until that day, the Messiah, his job description, is one of deliverance, freedom, and declaring the Father's amazing love. Well, that's wonderful, you say, but what has that really got to do with us today here in the 21st century? Well, we all need to know what our job description is. Many years ago, while I was still living in Florida, I was hired as a teaching assistant at the local community college. And the department that I was hired for was called the Individualized Learning Center. And the freshmen coming into the community college there who needed to brush up on their math and reading skills would be sent to our department. It was my job to test them and see what level they were at and then to assign them to one of four instructors that were there in the department. But on the first day of my job, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And the boss came and handed me a great big departmental manual about that thick. And he said, here, read this and you'll know what your job description is. <laughs> I read about three pages and then I closed the book and I said, I'll figure it out on my own. Eventually I did, but how much easier it would have been had he just given me a list of what my responsibilities were. I didn't need to read the whole manual at that point. All I needed to know was how to answer the telephone. I didn't even know what to say. I remember the first time I answered it, I said, learning lab, and the person at the other end said, what? I was supposed to say individualized learning center, but I didn't even know that much. So all I needed was a complete, simple, detailed job description of what my responsibilities were. Well, last month when Tim Mann was here, he said something really caught my attention. He didn't enlarge on it very much, but in the midst of talking about something else, he mentioned this passage in Luke that I just read, and he said that that job description was not just Jesus' job description, but it was ours as well. I had never thought of that. That had never entered my mind at all. And yet when I thought about it, I realized, yes, of course, we've been called to do those very same things that Jesus was sent to do, except 
for the crucifixion and the resurrection. But the things that he did while he was on earth, we've been called to do. So if Jesus' job description is also our job description, then there really is a clear, understandable list of what our job description is. It's in the Bible, and we can find it in many, many parts of the Bible. I've just picked out a few scriptures here that kind of list it. In Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Job description. And then in Luke ten nineteen, Jesus says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Job description. John seventeen eighteen. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, As you, Father, sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And after his resurrection, he repeats himself. Uh, John 20, 21 and 22 says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then the last little scripture here is John fourteen twelve. Most assuredly, I say to you, <clears throat> he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Job description. And there's many other places throughout the Bible that we can find bits and pieces of our job description. And if these things are true, and we really believe that we are to reproduce the works of Jesus in our world today, how exactly do we go about doing this? That's been kind of a mystery to me. But we get a lot of clues when we read the scripture. Jesus did many miraculous signs and wonders while he was here on earth. But you and I are not the Son of God. We are not the Messiah. What equipment do we need? Well, we know that being born again and receiving the Holy Spirit, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, are the first basic requirements. And Pastor Mark has been preaching a lot lately about the spirit-filled life. But what do we need after that? How do we work the works of Jesus? What actual actions do we take to do these things? Well, as I said, the Bible holds many clues to this question. And we don't really need to dig very far to discover some of them. For example, I really like John chapter 13 because it reveals some very important instructions for us on how to work like Jesus worked. I want us to look just a little more closely in this scripture this morning. The scene is set in the upper room. It is the night of the last Passover meal that Jesus will eat with his disciples 
before he goes to the cross. And I would imagine that that room was filled with an emotional feeling that may not have been present at other occasions. Jesus, of course, knew what was coming. The disciples didn't, but I'm sure they could pick up on that sense of something was about to happen. Some big event was about to take place. And if we start at verse 3, we read this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then we skip down to verses 12 through 17. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for that is what I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus actually says in this scripture that he is giving us an example of how to go about doing the works that are in our job description. The very same works that he did. So what kind of an example did Jesus set for us? Well, we find the first clue in the very first phrase of that scripture, which says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God. In other words, Jesus knew exactly who he was. Jesus had no identity crisis. He knew that he had come from God. He knew that he was going back to God. And he knew that all authority and all things had been given into his hands. This was not new knowledge to Jesus that only came at that moment. Because we find recorded a few years earlier in his ministry that Jesus had said, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus was absolutely secure in his identity as the Son of God. Well, that's key because we too need to be secure in our identity in the knowledge of who we are in Christ. Without that basic piece of equipment, we're going to end up ministering, trying to do the works of Jesus out of our own insecurities, out of our own fear, out of our own remembering the failures and the frustrations of the past. And we will minister those very things to people rather than the Spirit of God. We won't even be sure in the midst of our ministering to people whether our prayers are even being heard, much less answered. So it's of vital importance that we understand our identity as children of God, who we are in Christ. Norm Robertson has written a book called Winners in Christ, and he provides kind of a long list 
of descriptions of who the Bible says that we are. There's actually 31 of them, but I'm going to try to go over them quickly. Norm Robertson says that every born-again believer has been made righteous in Christ, has been saved by the blood of Jesus, has been delivered out of Satan's kingdom, has been forgiven and set free from condemnation, has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, has been seated with Christ in heavenly places, has been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ, has been accepted in the family of God, has been reconciled to God through Christ, has been redeemed from the slave market of sin, has been released from the curse of the law, has inherited the blessings of Abraham, has been made a king and a priest. We are all kings, queens, and priests to God when we have received him as our Savior. Every born-again believer has eternal life in the name of God, has passed out of death into life, has the anointing of God within him, has been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, has been called with a holy calling, is a son or a daughter of God, has overcoming power through the blood of Jesus, is a member of a royal priesthood, is the salt of the earth, is the light of the world reflecting the true light of the world, which is Jesus, is a citizen of heaven, is an ambassador for Christ, is a temple of God, is saved by grace, is a child of light, is God's workmanship, is sanctified and is inseparable from God's love. Robertson goes on to say that self-image has been defined as what we think and feel ourselves to be. But in reality, a healthy self-image, the only self-image that cannot crumble under any pressure, is seeing ourselves as God sees us, being committed to the truth of his estimation of us, and letting that be how we think and feel about ourselves. In other words, God's life is in your life. God's nature is your nature. God's ability is your ability. And God's strength is your strength. Because Jesus knew who he was in the eyes of his father, he could wash dirty feet and later on go to the cross, not as a victim, but as a victor. The next thing that Jesus did, knowing who he was in God, was to simply get up. He got up from the table. And in that day, of course, they reclined on cushions. They were actually laying down. He got up. He got up. If we know we are born again, spirit-filled, and know our identity in Christ, and yet refuse to budge from that comfortable seat in the very back row, we will never, we will never do the works that Jesus did. I stood up last week at the end of Pastor Claudette's message because I heard a lot that she said, but the words I heard that kept repeating over and over in my mind were when she said, get your butt out of the seat. Get your butt out of the seat. I kept hearing it over and over again. And so I got up out of my seat because I realized that I had been sitting in one of those back seats and I had been making excuses for why I couldn't do things, basically because I was too old. So I got up. I stood up because of those words, get your butt out of the seat. It's time to get moving. 
Rick Renner, in one of his devotionals, says that he can't find a single example in Scripture of God significantly using a person who was sitting around wasting time when he called them. All the men and women of God in the Bible were already busy doing something when God spoke to them. So the first step in doing the works of Jesus, actually doing them, is simply to get up. Jesus knew his authority. He knew his relationship with God and his identity as God's son. And knowing all of this, he just got up from the table, a simple action, but the first step into what would follow next. And what he did next was to take off his outer garment. This outer garment was probably his best robe, maybe the seamless one that we read about in Scripture. Probably the one he wore for special events like the Passover meal and other festivals. It was the garment that people recognized when they saw him. That's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. They could recognize him by that robe. But Jesus took it off and laid it aside. He literally stripped himself of any claim to honor and respect, any reputation or fame or applause that the world might give him. He deliberately laid aside what in us today we could probably call pride. And that is our next step. Once we are born again, once we have the baptism in the Holy Spirit, once we know who we are in Christ, and once we finally get up and get moving, the next thing we have to do is lay aside our pride and our ego. We have to quit worrying about what others think of us. We must be willing to be completely identified with Jesus and his job description. Why? Because that's our job description too. In the Jewish society of Jesus' day, it was unthinkable that anyone except the lowest of servants should wash people's feet. Usually, a slave was assigned to do that task, but it had to be a Gentile slave. No Jewish slave was ever required to perform such a demeaning task. Yet, think of it. Here was the creator of the universe, kneeling down and washing the dusty feet of his own creation. What an example he has set for those of us who truly desire in our heart to follow him and to do the works that he did. After Jesus took off his outer garment, he did something that must have seemed absolutely crazy to the disciples. He began to do the job of that lowest servant in the household. He began to wash and scrub those dirty feet. Notice, though, how completely Jesus gave himself to this nasty task. Look at how thorough he was in his work. First, he took the tools that he would need, a towel and a basin of water. Those are the tools of servanthood, by the way. Then he tied the towel around his waist, filled the basin with water, and set to work scrubbing those feet. Well, we too need to take the tools of servanthood that are available to us for the work of the ministry. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we also received a whole toolkit to use in fulfilling our job description. We have been given such tools as the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, the gift of faith, Gifts of healing and miracles, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And most importantly of all, we've been given God's love, shed abroad in our hearts to enable us to love and to wash all the dirty feet that we encounter along the way. 
Think of all the dirty feet that will need to be washed. And guess who's going to have to wash them? Those of you sitting right here and me. There are other tools that you have as well. Yours might be a hammer or a computer. It might be a diaper or a baby bottle. Your tool may be a piano or a paintbrush. Or it might be a cash register or a stethoscope. When these tools are combined with the tools that the Holy Spirit gives us, then Christians become a mighty force to be reckoned with. What Jesus did in washing the disciples' feet was an extreme act of servanthood. According to Jewish tradition concerning the relationship between a teacher and his disciples, a teacher had no right to demand or even expect the disciples to wash his feet. How much more unthinkable was it that the master should kneel down and wash his disciples' feet? But Jesus, knowing that all things were in his hands, picked up a servant's towel and did a servant's job. He went around the table washing and drying 24 dirty feet. It was a pretty dramatic scene, and I imagine a pretty emotional one as well. He even kneels to wash the feet of Judas knowing full well that Judas had already conspired to betray him. And yet the love of Jesus was so unwavering that he washes Judas's dirty feet along with all the other disciples. And as Jesus serves in this humble way, he does not do it from weakness. He does it from a position of all authority because God had put all things in his hands. Luke twenty two twenty three tells us that the disciples entered that upper room that night arguing over who was the greatest. Jesus knew what they were arguing about. They'd argued about it before. That seemed to be a constant thing on their minds. So Jesus acted out a parable for them. He knew that actions speak louder than words. So he taught those proud, arrogant disciples a lesson in true humility. He didn't just say it, he showed it. By what he did, Jesus illustrates true greatness. And we know that this whole lesson did have a powerful effect on the disciples because years later, Peter wrote these words. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Literally, wrap the apron of humility around yourself. Surely what Jesus did here stuck forever into the minds and the hearts of the disciples and it should be sticking in our hearts and minds as well after washing the disciples feet jesus put his robe back on sat down and asked the question do you know what i have done to you he had actually given them an important clue an example of how to fulfill their job description and this example is for today's disciples too for you and for me Jesus wants us to know that loving as he loves means taking the role of a servant, caring for the needs of others without expecting anything in return. We are to do this not only for those who treat us well, but even for those who disappoint us, who hurt us, betray us. Wow, what a job description is ours. How can we ever expect to live up to the example that Jesus set for us? Well, left to our human resources, it would be impossible. We couldn't do it. But when we are born again and spirit-filled, when we know who we are in Christ, when we get up out of our comfort zone, 
when we lay aside our pride and pick up the tools that the Holy Spirit has given us, and when we begin to wash the dirty feet of those around us, we find that all things are possible because the one who has called us is the one who loves us fully and completely, the one who loves us to the end, the one who has loved us to the end, to the cross, to the grave, and back again, with the same mission, purpose, and power that God sent Jesus into the world, he now sends us into the world, full of the spirit and power of God, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to restore sight to the blind, to preach the good news of the gospel, and to wash dirty feet. May it be so with us here.